0: I think for me, the secret to leadership was empathy, empathy that I had developed in my journalism, being able to put myself in the shoes of someone else and understand what it's like to be them. An absolute essential skill for leading other people was not just to tell them what to do, but to help them achieve the best that they could achieve and understanding where they are coming from.
1: Welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. While there are a ton of other leadership podcasts out there on the interwebs, this is the only one solely dedicated to developing undergraduate leaders in numerous fields. We bring in interesting leaders from a variety of disciplines and industries to dish out practical advice for entrepreneurial undergraduates embarking on their professional careers. You'll hear from leaders operating at all levels, CEOs and other C-suite individuals who are at the top of their industries, mid-career professionals only several years removed from their college days, and young leaders in school who are already doing amazing things. We feature leaders from business, diplomacy, education, journalism, engineering, law, medicine, and the sports world. It's all part of our mission here at the Picino Leadership Institute. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy
2: this episode. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Buccino Leadership Podcast. My name is Jasmine DeLeon, and I will be your host for today. For this episode, the podcast is thrilled to have Anthony DePama as our guest. Anthony Zapama has been called many different names throughout his career writer, journalist, producer, editor, professor, and published author. He has over 30 years of experience in journalism. For 22 years of his career, he worked for the New York Times as a reporter and foreign correspondent and wrote for every section of the newspaper. In 2001, Zapama published his first book, Here, a biography of the new American continent. And in 2006 he published his second book, The Man Who Invented Fidel. He also helped write and produce Toxic Legacy, a television documentary about the environment, which was nominated for an Emmy for research in 2007. De Palma graduated from Seton Hall University with a BA Communications in 1975. He returned to the university in 2008 to work as a writer in residence and two years later he completed his third book, City of Dust, about the aftermath of 9-11 on the environment, which was made into an award-winning documentary by Dr. Sanjay Gupta in 2012. Currently, De Palma is an adjunct professor at Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, a position he has held since 2009. He regularly contributes to the Times and lectures on North America, Cuba, and Mexico. This year, Mr. De Palma published his latest book, The Cubans, Ordinary Lives in Extraordinary Times. Mr. De Palma, welcome to the podcast.
0: It's wonderful to be here. Thank you.
2: So, congratulations on publishing your latest book, The Cubans Ordinary Lives in Extraordinary Times. How did this book come about and why did you write it?
0: Well, thank you. And just to go back to something that you said yes, indeed, during my career, I've been called many names. You chose all the good ones, some of them not so good. But, you know, I always take that as a mark of having done my job. I mean, as a journalist, We are not public relations uh, individuals, right? We're, We're out there to sort of tell the truth. And the truth sometimes can be difficult for people to accept. So one rule of thumb for journalists has often been if you are receiving criticisms from both one side and the other, you've basically done your job. If all you get are accolades, then you need to be concerned about it. But to go back to your question, So if you would come back with me just a few years to uh, November of 2016, when we were just finishing the election here in the United States, in Cuba, Fidel Castro, the leader of the revolution since the 1950s, died. And one of the things we do as correspondents at the New York Times is to ordinarily prepare obituaries in advance for individuals of a certain status and notoriety. And so I had that obituary of Fidel in my briefcase since sometime before the publication of the book, The Man Who Invented Fidel, which goes back to the early 2000s. So I've been carrying it all that time. Finally, the day arrived for it to be run. So it ran on the front page, four pages inside a major obituary that people took note of including publishers. And so a few weeks later my agent who I've been working with for many years called me to say that he had uh, spoken to a couple of publishers about the obituary. They had mentioned they had mentioned that they'd seen it and they were interested in a book about Cuba and would I be interested in putting together a proposal. I did and it was well received. We went to auction. And within a few weeks, it was accepted by Viking, a division of Penguin Random House, one of the largest publishers in the country, that asked for a book about Cuba. Interestingly, it really wasn't the proposal that I had submitted. They wanted a somewhat different approach, which I agreed with. And it was to look at the current situation in Cuba and how people there are dealing with, one, the death of Fidel, and what that meant for the revolution and for the people there, and two, some of the changes that had been introduced by his brother, Raul, in the years since 2006 when Fidel had taken sick, and although he uh, continued to be involved in the government, was not fully in charge and wasn't as much of an ideologue as Fidel. So Raul had instituted some changes that seemed to indicate that they were moving towards a sort of a more open economy. At the same time, in the United States, President Obama, in his last term in office, had taken the really historic step of restoring diplomatic relations with Cuba. So all of that meant that the people there, who we almost never hear from, because there's severe censorship in their own country, and most Americans don't have an opportunity to be there, The voices that we hear from the Cuban community are the ones that you hear in Florida today in in the lead up to the US elections that are very conservative, hardline, and, and very much opposed to the Castro government and are hoping at some point with the help of the US government to retake things there. So all of that was happening at the same time which sort of made it extraordinary times. But I wanted to focus on the ordinary people which has been a theme essentially through the decades that I have been in journalism is to really get out those stories of the people whose stories are almost never told.
2: So when you did research for this book, how did you learn about this? How did you go further into writing this story? When you well, it out of way?
0: it's a process that journalists use quite frequently, especially a generalist like myself. Although I have written a lot about Latin America and lived in Mexico and have reported from the region for a long time, I've also reported on many other things. And the expectation is that a good journalist can write about just about any subject in a way that a reasonably intelligent person could understand it. So you begin with what you know, And my interest in Cuba is both professional and personal because my wife, Miriam, came from Cuba when she was a young girl and uh, we've known each other for a long time. So my first visit to Cuba was not uh, as a reporter, but as the husband of a Cuban woman back in 1979 and I've been going back since then many times. And while I was correspondent, I also reported from there. So I had a a long history, but I had to begin. We had the idea for the book, as I told you, Ordinary Lives in Extraordinary times. But then how do you do it? There's no blueprint to go to. We had to basically create it. And when I say we, it's some consultation with my agents, some consultation with the publisher in New York. But essentially, it's whatever I conceived it to be. So throughout my career, I've been basically a self-starter. So I, I hunkered down. I did what I often do. You begin by reading a lot. And although I had read many books about Cuba, I went back and reread them. I read a whole other bookshelf full of books, contemporary books about Cuba, both nonfiction and fiction, just to get a better sense of where things were, and hopefully let that percolate through my mind to come up with an approach, which I did. And the approach was to select an individual place and look at a handful of lives that might give you an array of people in Cuba. I also had to be practical. It had to be a place that I could get to. It had to be a place that was interesting and had a mix of people. It had to be a place that was neither too rich nor too poor, neither too far in the country nor too much in the city. Havana was is the most well-known city, but it is so well-known that I didn't really want to just cover those tracks again. So I needed a place that would answer all of those things and also would receive me. Although I speak Spanish and married to a Cuban, I'm not Cuban. And it's obvious that I'm not Cuban. So I needed a place that was going to accept me because in order to work this kind of journalism, I have to have an intimate relationship with people who are going to feel confident enough about me that they will really tell me what they're feeling and thinking. And so putting all those things together, I considered a few options and settled on a municipality, a a neighborhood, a community that is part of Greater Havana, but as separate from Havana as Brooklyn is from Manhattan. So if you think of how Brooklyn stands alone as its own character and how people who live in Brooklyn would say, I live in Brooklyn, not necessarily, I live in New York. The town that I selected was essentially that same character. It also had the advantage for me of being the place where my wife was originally from. And although she had left there when she was eight years old and nobody remembered her or her family, except for one person, being able to say that gave me an entree that accelerated the process of intimacy. And so I w- they, they did open up to me in a remarkable way. I found some people of courage who really were willing to speak out despite negative ramifications for them. And they introduced me to other people who introduce me to other people. And that's the process that as journalists, we often would use, whether we were in a foreign country or in some city here in the United States. If you were sent to Kenosha, Wisconsin tomorrow to find out what it's like on election day in a place like Kenosha, you would do as a journalist what any journalist would do. You'd do a little research before you'd find one person who might talk to you, and then that person would introduce you to another and another and another on down. So it took about three and a half years uh, to complete the book. And it was published in May of this year, unfortunately, right in the middle of a pandemic, the day we found out about what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis. So it has been a difficult run, but that's often the way life is.
2: When you wrote this book, you used different skills from your journalism career. So what advice do you have for aspiring journalists and foreign correspondent? And what are skills they should work on cultivating?
0: Well, writing a book is, a, is an immersive experience. So during the three and a half years that I did it, I did almost nothing else. And a lot of it was solitary work. I traveled alone. I was down there by myself most of the time. And the writing process, of course, is here in my office and, and uh, you do that. So you need to really have a kind of a, a bravado about yourself. You have to believe that you can do it. You can't start on a project like that without believing that you can complete it. Although there's a long distance between beginning it and completing it. And I, I know many colleagues who have started that route, gotten a contract for a book and have never completed it. So you you have to have a confidence in yourself, the confidence that I'm looking for from the people I'm interviewing, I have to have in myself as well. Something that I've lived with for almost all my professional life, and even earlier than that, is to understand that, especially as a journalist, but really as any individual, there are no small tasks. Everything you do has an impact on what else you do and on the people around you. So it's tempting to say, uh, this interview is not important, so I'm not going to worry about it. Maybe I'll put it in my calendar. Maybe I'll wake up, maybe not. But if you're not going to pay attention to those small things, you'll never really gain all the intelligence and the skills and also the confidence of other people that you'll need to be able to do that. So I thought you might ask something like that. And what I wanted to show you, because I know the Leadership Institute at Seton Hall and I respect it a lot. It's one of the best programs there. I still receive, even though I haven't had my position as writer in residence since I began the book in 2017, I still receive the Sunday morning email message from Mike Reuter, who's become a great friend. So I wanted to show you this. Back in high school, this is ancient history, right? Back in high school, one of the teachers had us keep a journal. So look at how nasty this thing is, right? It's, It's from 1966, I think. And what I had put there at the very beginning of this journal. So this is, you're supposed to write something every day. And I don't even remember where it came from, but I remember this and I use it every day, even today. And it says, seest thou a man diligent in his calling, he shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men. Essentially, you're going to do the best you can do on whatever project it is that you have. If you're not going to do that for the small projects, you're never going to be allowed to do the big ones. So, This was the beginning of it in 1968. This is probably volume 30 or so. Uh, If I turn the camera around, you'd see that there's a whole shelf of them. And so I use it every day. So it's a combination of Confidence and perseverance and eh, creativity, you, because you're again. There's no kit to writing a book. There's no kit to writing a book about Cuba. There's no kit to writing a book about Cuba about ordinary people and extro- So you have to create it. It really is a process of creation, like many of the things that the students are hoping to do in the, in the future or are doing right now. So you have to have a combination of skills and confidence, and a real sense that what you're doing is important, no matter what it is. I, I think that's a pretty good encapsulation of, of how you write a book, or make a, a film, or write a novel, or create a company, or do uh, just about anything that you, you might want to do.
2: When you wrote that in your journal in high school, did you know you wanted to be a journalist or a writer back then? How did you become interested in this field?
0: Yes the answer is yes really going back as far as i can remember writing was the goal not so much journalist at the beginning i can tell you that when when i grew up in hoboken right i was the fifth of six children in the family my father was a longshoreman never really completed grammar school my mother was a house keeper, housewife, never completed grammar school. There weren't many books in the house and it was just wasn't that kind of family. I was the first in the family to go to college. But way before that, one of the real influences in my life was the kid who lived next door to us in Hoboken. And his name was Nick. And the thing about Nick was that he was in a wheelchair. He had a couple of things wrong with him, but basically the wheelchair defined his life And in many ways, it shaped my own life. Because to be with Nick meant that I couldn't do the things you normally would do in a city like Hoboken at that time. We did the things that Nick could do. And one of those things was to read. So I could read there where I couldn't read in the house because nobody in the house really had that habit. And one of the things we did, and I'd love to be able to tell you that even then we were creating stories. and whole worlds and and interesting characters. I didn't have that talent then, but I understood the power of words. And what we would do is basically copy out, like monks in the Middle Ages, copy out the words of the comic books and create our own comic books using the words that were already there. That's not ideal. But in a, te- in a place like Hoboken in the 1950s and early 1960s, I mean, it was a much tougher, rougher place. Very unusual to be so sedentary and to be so focused on words. And I think it, it sort of set, as quiet as that sounds, it set off an explosion inside of me that helped me to understand about words and about stringing sentences together and how powerful they could be. Oftentimes we were writing about superheroes from the Marvel comics. And so there was that combination of power from the stories and the simple act of, of writing them out. So that sort of got me the bug and I started writing and writing on my own. In high school, I was writing, there were essays and contests and, and the normal process of you know using these which had to be submitted for grades and the, the uh, teachers sent them back saying, you should do this, it was encouragement. And that encouragement was really important and it continued into, uh, into college. And then I started to look at, as I got to college at Seton Hall, I started to look at things a little bit more practical. And it occurred to me that journalism was a way to write, I, I guess I thought, bef- until I could get my novel done. But the journalism itself was important because although there weren't books being read in in my house in Hoboken, my father, the longshoreman, did read the newspaper, the daily newspaper, uh, every day. And I observed how it was possible to reach even someone like him who wasn't a reader, who wouldn't have read a novel, but would read the newspaper. And the communications department at Seton Hall offered that uh, opportunity. So I started taking those courses. And Very soon, it was during my sophomore year, I applied for a summer position at the Jersey Journal, just out of the blue, just sent in a letter. And I was quite surprised when they called. And all I had, I had, I think, two courses in journalism from Seton Hall at the time. And they needed somebody. People were going on vacation. They basically needed a body in the newsroom. But I found it uh, to be something I liked, something I could do and something I could do fairly well. And from that point on, it has continued. I used as a sort of a guide, a uh, willingness to take any job as long as it wouldn't hurt, as long as it wouldn't hurt or hold me back from my goal, which was eventually to be writing full-time. And I continued that until, until today.
2: So journalism must have changed from when you started your career up until now. And many people say that it's a difficult time to be a journalist, especially in this era of fake news and the spreading of misinformation. What do professional journalists contribute, and how, can, how are they leaders, even as individuals?
0: Well, things certainly have changed uh, quite a bit. And I can tell you in all honesty that even back in 1971, when I was taking those first journalism courses, Being a journalist was described as, uh, at that time, was described as being a very difficult position. There was concern about competition from radio and TV and how newspapers were dying and how people were losing the habit of taking a newspaper. So that was a long time ago. So we've been in this process for a long time. I would encourage uh, any student, any young person today to really be careful about distinguishing between newspapers and journalism, All right? So difficult time to become a newspaper woman, but as far as becoming a journalist, maybe more important today than it was 50 years ago, and also to distinguish between fake news and the mission to tell the truth. So what's happened, and and we could go into a whole long discussion about why it's happened, and there are lots of people, I'm sure there are professors on campus today, who could talk to you about how the internet has broken up the need for a media company to, to appeal to a broad range of people in order to get those advertising revenues and how that's all changed. And now you can narrowcast instead of broadcast, narrowcast to just an individual group of people who have this, who share the same ideals. And that's how you end up with news that sort of fulfills an expectation. You believe one thing and you want the news, to reinforce that thing, which is different from the other approach that we had before, which was to appeal to the broadest number of people. But there's always going to be a need for the truth. And I think any thinking person today would look at the situation that we're in, and rather than being scared away from it because of the talk about fake news, would quickly come to the conclusion that reliable information is more important than it ever was before. From a practical standpoint, for a journalist today, someone starting it, so remember, journalist, not newspaper woman, but journalist, starting today, you could look at it the way one of my editors at the New York Times, who was the executive editor, Bill Keller described it in all sincerity as a golden age of journalism, because you have so many different outlets today. And it's not like you need to go through this long process of going to a small newspaper somewhere out in Oklahoma, and then going to a middle-sized market, and then going to a larger market and working your way up. You are a journalist right now. You're giving out information. You are producing information and producing news. We've all become a combination of news producers every time we take a video and post it and news consumers every time we look at any kind of news that comes across in any format. So instead of having just a handful of newspapers in a city, you've now got thousands of outlets in any city. And if you talk about the country or the globe, you're talking about billions of news producers and billions of news consumers which gives you an opportunity to establish yourself in a way that wasn't possible before. I mean, you, Jasmine, can become the news outlet. doesn't have to be the New York Times or the Jersey Journal. You can do it yourself, and so can anyone else. So I think it, it's like many things in life. It's a matter of the perspective and how you perceive things. And I think it's, it's an opportunity. And I, I don't discourage people from going into journalism, although I do caution them about going into newspapers.
2: Bouncing off of your advice about perspective, how has being a journalist and a writer and a correspondent impacted the way that you see the world?
0: Keep in mind that I grew up in the 1950s in Hoboken, (laughs) and uh, I actually didn't even get on a plane until after I was married. I mean, my world was pretty restricted. Now, Hoboken at that time, to me, was an entire world, and as I get older, I Can see an entire world inside of a community like the one I studied in in Cuba, or even going back to Hoboken today, although it's quite a different community from what it was. For me, being a relatively quiet, introspective person, that same person who was sitting next to the kid in the wheelchair writing out the comic books 60 years ago, for that person, the ability to go out and ask questions of anyone, the ability to sit down and explore any theme and the ability to attempt to convey information to people I don't know and have the possibility that at some point someone would write to me or stop me on the street and say, you know, something that you wrote touched me inside. You know, that magical process of being able to reach across the pages of a book And to actually touch the heart of someone I don't know because of the words that I wrote, that transformed my life and allowed me, especially becoming a foreign correspondent, learning a different language, believing in a different culture, or understanding that everyone in the world, no matter who they are, has some nobility inside because they have a dream and they have uh, their own world inside them. In order to respect that, the ability to interview a president as well as somebody living in a hut on a hillside in Mexico, that really has opened up the entire world to me.
2: So our final question for today is, can you talk about changing from leading yourself as a reporter and writer to leading others when you were a bureau chief in New York Times in Mexico and Canada? So what, what did you do to get these positions? How did, how did things shift for you after that happened?
0: You know, I, I, it really wasn't that much of a shift because I had already made as a part of who I am, a part of my moral compass that would help me decide what to do wherever I was, was to maintain this respect for other people and understand no matter who they are, that they have their own priorities, their own life, and that's helping them achieve it, whatever it is, can be gratifying for me as well. So if I needed to put out assignments for the Bureau in Mexico, the tradition, honestly, was for the Bureau Chief to take the page one story. That was the tradition. So once you got to be the Bureau Chief, you took the page one stories. I took some but not all. And I made sure that the people who were working under me had sufficient opportunity to get those page one stories as well. Now, if you ask them, maybe it wasn't always what they, what they expected or hoped for, but I think an independent observer would, would have agreed that we were, we were doing that. And the same thing in Canada and the same thing, basically working in the newsroom in New York, where you're in a a much larger group of people. I think for me, the secret to to leadership was was empathy. Empathy that I had developed in my journalism, being able to put myself in the shoes of someone else and understand what it's like to be them. An absolute essential skill for doing a book like The Cubans, but also for leading other people was not just to tell them what to do, but to help them achieve the best that they could achieve and understanding where they are coming from. So putting myself in their place, I think, was for me and has been for me and is still for me the most important skill. There's one thing I wanted to add if you, if we're wrapping up, because as I said at the beginning, I do receive those Sunday messages from uh, the Leadership Institute and I save a lot of them. And there's one that, although I didn't realize it at the time, encapsulates my approach to my professional career and to a larger scale, my life. And it was something that uh, came through on one of those Sunday messages, and it was quoting Nelson Mandela. And what Mandela said or what they quoted him as saying was, basically, may your choices reflect your hopes and not your fears. And, you know, if I, I, I look back on my life and the kinds of decisions I made, all right, so I, I leave the New York Times. Why would you leave the New York Times? Well, you'd stay if you were afraid that you would never be able to achieve any kind of uh, recognition once you were no longer connected to the New York Times. So that would be a decision to stay based on fear. But my decision to leave was based on hope. And the hope was that I would be able to use the time at Seton Hall to make the transition, essentially to what I had hoped for way back when I was sitting next to Nick, copying out those comic books, to be an author, a full-time writer, someone who was producing things of lasting value, like a book, as opposed to the newspaper article, which from one day to the next, the newspaper ends up being used to clean windows. And you can only do that if you do what Mandela wished for the people he was speaking to, that when you make a decision, when you make a choice, that that choice be a choice of hope and not of fear. And I I think now I could, if we had another hour, I could talk to you about every one of the decisions I made through life that uh, on the surface would be, you know, would require an explanation, but always have been done with that sense. Like when I sent the letter to the Jersey Journal as a, you know, having had two classes in journalism at Seton Hall, sending that and taking that position with the hope that it would lead me closer to achieving my dream. So I think I'd like to leave that message with anyone who's watching the podcast. And it comes right from the Leadership Institute, that your your choices, and there are many all the time, but that they be made out of hope rather than fear.
2: Thank you so much. That is all the time that we have for today, Mr. Tapama. It has been a pleasure. Thank you again for coming on our podcast. This is Jasmine DeLeon signing off. And to our listeners out there, I'll talk to you next week.
1: On behalf of everyone at the Bucino Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank all of our podcast listeners, the podcast team, as well as 89.5 WSOU Pirate Radio for allowing us to use their facilities. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership and on Twitter at Leadership. At Seton Hall,
2: we make leaders better.